you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, whatever form of uh, God's Word you have, so you can set your eyes on the reading, and we can begin to worship God from a place of propositional truth. Our men's meeting is going to be important. We want to gather our men up in our bosom and help them understand that the hell that they are facing is by design, and we should not be neglecting telling them the truth about this battle. Our beloved sisters have had the world in their hand for some 70 years now that feminism has brought in the big lie. And we are so glad for our baby girls. I told mine many years ago, I said, this is your turn, sweetie. Told all six of them that. It's your turn. They're going to open doors for you. They're going to let you in. They're going to give you grants and scholarships. They're going to allow you to ascend and take positions of power and authority. And it has been true. I told my boys, it's going to be tough for you. Not just because you're black, but because you're men. Because we have inverted everything. Everything has been, once you invert God, everything else is inverted. And if we do not recover our men, we're going to hell. And our sisters have to help us in that regard by not fighting your men, but supporting them. That's going to be the battle. That's going to be the real battle. So Saturday will be a men's meeting. And we'll be calling a holy convocation to all of our local fellowships in California to come and for those to watch online so we can talk about what it means to be a biblical man because you're going to have to be one if you're going to make it through this next tribulation that's already on us. Now I have a message for you today. I hope you can handle it. Arise, move, and go is our thing. It's a call to the flexibility of being able to hear God's voice at a time when he shows you that the bullseye is on your back and to know how to pivot and how to move so as not to be stifled, paralyzed, hindered, or completely fatally wounded by the attack of the enemy. God's people have always been called to rise, move, and go hither and yon because we're passing through. We're passing through. Never to be stuck anywhere on this terra firma if God is calling you to be a true Hebrew. But our subtitle is what we're going to be dealing with today. And they saw God. And they saw God. That's our text. We are coming from the 24th chapter of Exodus. And we will be meditating on a number of things today that I hope will be relevant for you. And they saw God. And what a drastic difference between the experience of these former Egyptian slaves under Pharaoh with their pantheon of gods, which Israel had to endure for 430 years. What a, what a difference when, when, as a group of Hebrew slaves, they were under the rigor and dominion of a false god in a man named Pharaoh. Uh, they were under what we would call uh, prophetically an antichrist system. And they were immersed in it and they were taught it. And for all intents and purposes, they lived as Egyptians. I told you that, right? Um, Even though they were 
chosen by God because of his promise to another that they should be a people group to the praise of the glory of his grace. And that parallels the gospel. For many of us grew up under Pharaoh's rule. We wore his garments and we thought and acted like he wanted us to until God called us by his grace. And Israel experienced a God that came into Egypt, not subverting them like this present tyrannical Marxist system is doing to our country, but rather showing himself for what he really is, God. And he used a mediator, a man that they knew and God knew to come in and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. This is called true biblical liberation theology, by the way. And God showed up. He didn't, he didn't just send his boys in to surreptitiously educate and brainwash men and women and, and psychobabble them into a kind of collective system that you and I are dealing with. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Yes. When God came in, he came in overtly and he didn't deal with the people. He dealt with the leaders. Somebody will learn something in a moment. Because see, the way the snake works, he always operates on the ground. God operates from heaven. And he operates through ordained men who will tell the world prophetically who the true and the living God is. And whether you know it or not, that's a battle that was waged between gods, the Lilliputian, Lilliputian God, Pharaoh, and the true and the living God. His mediators worked and God's mediators worked. And guess who prevailed? The one true and living God. Brought Israel out of that dark system and began gradually bringing them, as he said in Exodus 19, to himself. That's what he's doing with us. He's bringing us to himself through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are also traveling through the wilderness, are we not? And we've learned a lot of lessons up to now. We are still in the 10th encampment. This 10th encampment has a lot of lessons to learn. We won't move for a while. You already know that the end of our text said Moses went up into the mount for 40 days. That's a major testing period. I want to lead you up unto that point today and show you several things that are remarkable about what God has done. God brought them out of a false system. He brought them out from a false God. He showed himself powerful through signs and wonders and miracles. Did he not? And then he demonstrated that he was a patir, he was a father, he was a patria for them, that he would provide for them bread and food and water and protection as he led them through the wilderness. Has God not done that for us? And that's because God, the true and the living God, really is God. He not only knows how to call us out, but he knows how to keep us on our journey. Men and women who know God in the pardon of their sins and in the power of his grace will admit that to this very day, God has kept us. His promises are true. He's watched over us, led us with signs and wonders by which we know him to be the true and the living God and us being his children. But what a remarkable day we have in front of us now. And I pray that you're not so sleep or distracted as to miss this. This is so important. In this 10th encampment, God has called Israel to another level of developmental experience. Remember I told you it's deliverance, 
It's development and then deployment. It's deliverance out of Egypt, development in the wilderness, and then deployment in the promised land. You guys remember that? This is old teaching I've told you years ago. Deployment in the promised land, meaning when they get there, they will be mature enough in their walk with God after 40 years to know what to do. Development is where we are right now, where God is incrementally developing an understanding of who he is to his people. Today is remarkable to me, given where Israel was, where the Hebrews were when God first called them out. They were acting like they didn't know God. Remember that? They were, and, and it was really because they didn't know God. But God has shown them that while they were questioning, can God provide a table in the wilderness? He was actually providing one. And he was helping them understand that he's never a God afar off, for they had the pillar of fire at night and the cloud during the day. So God was with them. This is called Jehovah Shema. The Lord was there, was he not? But even as we consider and reflect that history, you and I know sometimes we can have a hard time believing that God is present with us, even though we see the signs, even though the cloud is there, and even though the fire is there, and even though God has catechized us in the fact that the cloud represents the mystery of his majesty, and the fire represents the purity of his presence, so that we know he's there and the cloud protects us during the day from our enemies and the fire guides us during the night on our journey, we still struggle with whether or not the Lord is among us. Would you agree with that? And so here the Lord says, okay, it's been over 90 days and I'm getting ready to draw them closer to me. I'm getting ready to draw the whole nation closer to me. Just a few weeks ago, we discovered how God spoke to them out of the mount, did he not? And, and Moses reminded them in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 5, there is no God in the universe who has done what the true and the living God has done to such a nation. At one time, the whole nation hears from God. And so what did they get to have? They had a, they had a massive, graphic audio experience, did they not? And we talked about how the awesome nature of the thunderous lightning power of God's word humbled them to the point where they requested what? A mediator. And as I shared with you, that makes all the sense in the world. Because drawing near to the true and the living God and the perfections of his holiness is going to undo you and I by virtue of our sinfulness. And that having a direct one-on-one -on -one conversation with the true and the living God, according to the whole of Torah, is impossible with sinful man. And so they fully grasped the fact that by nature they could not draw near to God because of their sinfulness. That is clear. And so they wisely requested a go-between, a daysman, a mediator that might talk with God and then talk to them so that they could hear from God through the mediation. This, we understand, is the way the gospel works. Is that true? How can I know except some man teach me? And so all of us, if we've ever come to know God in any saving way, it's through mediation. 
the mediation of a word proclaimed, the mediation of a man proclaiming that word or a person proclaiming that word, the mediation of parents raising them up in the truth. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Don't let it go over your head. What a blessed economy that God has given all of us to be part of that mediatorial work so the gospel can be brought near to men and women. Today, God once again wants to draw them near to him so that they can know the true and the living God is with them. So under points one, two, and three, I want to deal with their zealous commitment to mediatorial what? Obedience. Secondly, the divine call to worship in God's presence. And then finally, the transcendent view of the king of glory. A transcendent view of the king of glory. These are easily ascertained out of the text. This is how you preach exegetically. You don't hodgepodge ideas. You take them from the text and you expand on them. It's obvious by the text to me that they are still enjoying the benefits of their request back in Exodus 20. Moses, you talk to God and tell us what God says and we will do everything that he says. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a moment because that's a real problem for all of us. Point number one, the zealous commitment to mediatorial obedience. We see this in chapter 24. Verse 3. Notice what it says in chapter 24, where we are, verse 3. Here's what it says. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. I'm going to explain that in a moment. And all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord had said, what? We will do. Y'all caught that? Now see what has happened? God answered their prayer. Moses went and talked with God for the people. And now Moses comes back and tells the people what God says. And so they are gladly responding in the affirmative, are they not? Thank you, Moses, for what God says. And by the way, with one word, we will do all that God asks. Now, I'm going to press home why that's the case in a moment. I just want you to see how we open our mouth and say we're going to do something that ultimately we don't do. But it's okay, you need to get this, because it says it again over in verse 7. Look at verse 7, Exodus 24, verse 7. And he took the book of the covenant, and he read in the audience of the people. What a beautiful event. That's what I'm doing right now. This is what we call expository preaching. Please hear me. Expository preaching is when you come to church. This is called the ecclesia, God remembering us remembering every part of the body, and you sit under the reading of the word. They are under the reading of the word, are they not? They are under the hearing of the word. This is called expository Bible preaching and teaching. This is not just some man or some woman ranting off at the mouth. You are under the hearing of the covenant as I speak. As I speak. And so Moses read in the audience of the people, and they all said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be what? Let me put a parenthetical on that because what you have just seen is the prerequisite to a consecration that's about to take place. This is a covenant that's read, and it represents the marriage union between a man and a woman. The man has told you what he's going to do. He has laid out promises. He has laid out Uh, rules and regulations for the governance of the marriage. 
and he has fundamentally says, I will love you, I will protect you, I will keep you, I will guard you. Now the woman is responding in kind by saying collectively as a whole, we will do all that you said. Did y'all get that? This is why we know that in Western culture, so much of what we do by virtue of traditions and protocols are extracted from the Bible. That for us to deconstruct it and remove it is nothing but setting ourselves up for hell. And so here the man has laid out his love for his bride and brought her out of bondage and has laid before her all that he will do to bring her into her fullness and destiny. And it's only appropriate that she says, I do, I will. Y'all got it? I do, I will, because a covenant is about to be established here. It's extremely important for you to get. What has Moses done under point number one? Two things, clearly. One, Moses is serving as the schoolmaster that teaches. Would you agree? He's serving as a schoolmaster that teaches. You have to know that we're in chapter 24, and all this began in chapter 21. So for four chapters, Moses has been talking to God, has he not? Chapter 21, verse 1, please. I just kind of want to build that framework for you because that's kind of what we do. Is that not right? That's what we do. We try to contextualize the information so you can see it for what it is because so many people are just ignorant and unlearned about the Bible. We're in chapter 24. That means since chapter 20, we've got four chapters we're dealing with, right? In chapter 21, verse 1, notice what it says. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Who's talking? This is a subject-object relationship. The Lord is talking to who? Moses. See, so what's going on is that Moses has left the people and went and hung out with God. And God's laying out before Moses the whole litany of what I'm getting ready to talk to you about. I'm getting ready to share with you that God has given Moses the Constitution. He's given Moses the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the legislative document and manuscript that constitutes the marriage. And Moses is nothing but the bridegroom. As are all faithful preachers, just friends of the bridegroom, to let the bride know what her rights are, her privileges, and her responsibilities. That's what Moses is doing. Look at verse 2. Exodus 21, 2. Ah, stop. I don't want to go there. I'm going to jump into that later. I'm, I must describe then what's taking place here. What's taking place here can be underscored under point number two as precepts of obedience, sub point B rather, precepts of obedience and promises of what? Right, precepts of obedience and promises of a blessing. I love that. Precepts of obedience. Obedience is always, again, a negotiation between two people where the higher speaks to the lower about how they are to interact. God is giving precepts, laws, and, and mandates. Now, they're, they're given to us in three obvious categories. Are you ready? The first categories are what we might call personal rights. Personal rights. I want you to just write that down. These are personal rights that God is going to lay down on a social. These are social personal rights in order for the people of God to know how to act among each other. We have that in our Constitution, do we not? And Bill of Rights. These are called social rights. How men and women behave. This is why the next verse in chapter 21 was talking about a man being in slavery to his brother. And it can only be done for seven years. And after the seventh year, you've got to let him go. 
so that this servile status is not one of rigor or hatred or demonic hostility, but rather helping the poor get back on their feet by a servile relationship so they can go back to their inheritance. That's called a personal rights relationship uh, administration that's being laid down. So personal rights are being laid down. And the next thing that's going to be set forth in chapter 22 and 23 are what are called property rights. Write it down, property rights. If you see your neighbor's ox in the ground, you go and help your neighbor by pulling his ox out. His ox is his livelihood. You go help him. You remember what God said in the 10 words? You shall not covet your neighbor's ass or ox or house or wife or anything that's your neighbor's. Right. So if we are not coveting, then we are inclined to help. Are we not? See, because whenever God gives you negative, prohibitive principles, he means for you to actually do the opposite. Affirm it by your recognizing that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so these are what we call property rights. This would be the land. This would be the territory. This would be the cattle, the oxen, the asses, the totality of whatever a man had. His neighbor does not have a right to come in and take it by hook or by crook. Told you, you see how far we are in our, in our nation from truth. And God taught Israel before they even entered into the promised land. When you get into your inheritance, don't you sit up and act like you have a right to look at another man's inheritance and want to take it. For in doing so, you are inferring that God is not sufficient, that God is not caring, that God is not fair, that God does not give you everything you need for life in godliness through a knowledge of his son. Now, we know better, don't we? Listen, I don't need the same inheritance that you have. I don't need to look on it and see how much more land you have than I do. If I spend two seconds considering that, I am coveting. Because see, what I know, and I shouldn't even go here, but what I know is God gave them that parcel of land in Canaan to actually see if they would cultivate a right relationship with God so he could expand it to the whole world. See, this I already know because that's what he did with Adam and Eve. He told Adam and Eve, cultivate my home and I'll let you have the whole world. You will have a model to take from the home of our relationship and plop it down all over the terra firma of planet Earth and replicate God's glory in the fullness of our relationship with him. Now, ostensibly, that corresponds to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Am I making sense? Just trying to help you before we get to a profound experience these people are going to have. So Moses is the schoolmaster. I love it. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 1, verse 17, or rather um, John said it about Jesus and Moses. Now capture it. Moses gave you the what? He gave you the law. For the law was given by Moses. And what John is doing is making a distinction between the outer temple and the inner temple between the external framework of proposition and the meaning and substance of that proposition and the content of the gospel. Did y'all get that? Meaning Torah lays out for us a framework of things that can only be totally realized in Jesus. 
So even though Israel got a parcel of land, what the new Israel gets is the world. Even though Israel gets to reign with God in that physical dimension, the new Israel reigns with God over everything. Even though Moses is the legislator of law, Jesus is the legislator of grace. And grace extends to the whole universe. Are y'all following what I'm saying? So the purpose of Moses was to lead them to Jesus. Hope I'm helping some of you guys because I'm giving you adumbrations of a total theological system. My church knows this, having been taught by me over the years, we're doing right now systematic theology, are we not? From creation to anthropology to soteriology to eschatology, we're doing that right now under bibliology. Your Bible is a coherent whole, an unfolding revelation, an unbroken story. And God's telling the story right now. We get to look back and see how our brothers and sisters handled the word. And we get to look and see where we are over against the mirror of that paradigm. Because we are doing the same thing only in an advanced version. Does that make sense? We are in an advanced version. This is what the apocalypse teaches you and me. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You and I know the law doesn't say, but grace does. But now why do we need law in order to show men and women who the true lawgiver is? Hold on to that because I'm getting ready to develop that. Why do we need law to show men and women who the true lawgiver is? You create a society of what these foolish scholars are asserting going all the way back to the Enlightenment, that everything is a mere social construct, is absolutely insane. If you assert that, Everything you are seeing and hearing is just the way you want it to be, and you can change it like Play-Doh. You are demonically deluded. How arrogant is the fool that opens his mouth like Foucault and Derrida and many of them who were perverts at the highest levels of immorality. In fact, they were so inclined and engaged in sexual perversion with children, it's no wonder the seeds of their doctrine are showing up today in an attempt to mutilize our children. Every seed-bearing herb bringing forth fruit of its own kind. You shall know them by their fruits. You shall know them by their fruits. And so when we are talking about how Torah works, what we're talking about is how God's law presupposes, this is what we call an axiomatic assumption, that there is a lawgiver. God's law presupposes there's a lawgiver. This is why the battle that we've been fighting since the fall of mankind is, who is the Lord? Remember what Pharaoh said when God showed up? Who is the Lord? That's why Moses said, just hang out a minute. He's coming, he's right behind me. The Lord is right behind me and he can speak for himself. Wherever there is a Lord, there is a law. And in our society, we are destroying the law, dismantling the law, denying the law, distorting the law, abrogating the law. To do that is to destroy yourself. Because if the law is a reflection of the lawgiver and he created you in his image, then you are an intrinsic, intrinsic system of law. Did that make some sense? If God is love, I'm love. If God is righteous, I'm righteous. If God is orderly, I'm orderly. If God is kind, I'm kind. 
If God is wise, I'm wise. If God is holy, I'm holy. If God is just, I'm just. If God is a consuming fire, as we're about to see, I'm a consuming fire too. Am I making some sense, ladies and gentlemen? And when you separate human beings from the true and the living God, you're creating sons of perdition headed to hell. I'm going to circle back on that in a moment. You got time for me today? So in our first point, what we are laying out is how gracious God is to use Moses. This is also, let me, I I love my elder having made the observation about meekness. Meekness is what God does to a person, right? To, to, To hang out with God like Moses did, you have to be meek. You have to be willing to be controlled by another. You have to be willing to be controlled by another. You're about to see that play itself out. But Jesus said that very same thing as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Matthew 5. He said, the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek are those who are controlled by a higher power, a true power. Am I making some sense? It's extremely important for us to comprehend that. Meekness has nothing to do with emotional temperament. It has everything to do with a resolve to submit to the hierarchical authority of a sovereign ruler whom you have already admitted he bought you, he paid for you, he owns you, he can tell you what to do. And these are the battles that we're fighting today in my generation with wicked men and women who are boldly opening their mouth and saying that there is no God but me. That's what I'm hearing and you are too. I taught you this for 20 years. See, you can't get rid of God without making yourself God. Subpoint B, the precepts of obedience and the promises of blessings. Look in chapter 23, verse 25. Chapter 23, 25. We're moving towards chapter 24. And here's what God says. I love the way he, he said it in chapter 23, verse 25. And you shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless your bread and your water, and I will take away sickness from the midst of you. Is that a good deal or what? Listen to what he says. There shall nothing cast their young nor be barren in your land, and the number of your days I will fulfill. I don't have time. But the Antichrist system does exactly the opposite. It forces abortion. It forces barrenness. It forces miscarriages. It does not want multiplication. It wants diminishing. Are you hearing me? This is why men and women don't hear the word of God taught in their churches. This is why, because if you hear it, you will know God's will. You will know God's priority. You will know the precious things of the Lord. You will know that's how God exercises dominion from generation to generation. He says, going on in verse 7, I will send my fear before you and will destroy all the people to whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies to turn their back unto thee. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hittite, Canaanite, Hittites from before you. I will drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against you. God is saying, I'm going to go before you and make a way for you to advance and occupy the territory. Please listen to what God says. I'm going in front of you and fight in such a way that as soon as they see you, they're going to run from you or bow before your wisdom. All right, all right. So so the way this is to be understood is merely this. In God's providential workings in our life, He expects us as children of God to be children of God. 
and to be children of our Heavenly Father. See, in a minute, you're going to see that this is really a conditional promise predicated upon our obedience to him. God's not going to just go before you and beat down all your enemies if you're living like hell. I'm sorry. It will not happen. If you don't want to be a son of the living God, then God's going to let you live like a son of the devil. This is the way Jesus put it very clearly. It's extremely important. Be ye perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are a city set on a hill. The implication is we operate as sons and daughters of God. And when that's true, then God is with us. And when God is with us, then we can face our adversaries. And when we face our adversaries in obedience to submission to God, us being humbled by him, God will work through us to break down every stronghold, every opposition, every fortress that's trying to exalt itself against the knowledge of the truth. We're not doing that well today, are we? We're not doing that well in the West, are we? And it's because we are not obeying God. Am I making some sense? Yeah, don't blame it on God. How can one run 10,000 to flight except that God had forsaken them? Don't blame it on God that our schools are completely run over by wickedness and vile filth out of the pit of hell. We let that door open up many decades ago in our rebellion and superficial Christianity in our carnality, in our secularism, in our love for material things, rather than a love for committing ourselves to the care of God's glory and the gospel of his efficacious grace, rooting us and grounding us in our identity that's in Christ. Now we're reaping the whirlwind. Anybody understand what I just stated? There's no doubt about it. So part of the blame is us, without a doubt. You can blame the left or blame the right. You can blame Trump. You can blame Fauci. Get yourself on your knees. Get on your own knees and understand. So what Moses is doing for these people is beautiful. These are God's promises. Look again over at verse uh, 30 through 32. He says over verse 30, by, and by little and little will I drive them out from before you until you be increased and inherit the land. And I will set bounds from the Red Sea even unto the sea of the Philistines and from the desert unto the river. I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, neither shall they make uh, for they shall make you sin against me. Uh, for if you serve their gods, I will surely be, it will surely be a snare unto you. Here we are today. June 3rd. Is this June 3rd? June 4th, 2023. And this has come to pass in our nation. This is where we are. You, you can, today you get to hear the truth. This is where we are. You, you can blame it on white folks, black folks. All that's a delusion. All that's a smokescreen. It's all a consequence of abandoning the one true and living God. We've opened the door for idolatry. It's been in our country for so long, I don't even know how to enumerate it. And that idolatry has destroyed our power because it's actually destroyed our identity. Our nation does not look like children of the living God. Nothing of the sort. And even your churches don't. 
Point number two in our outline, let's keep going. The divine call to worship in God's presence. So under point number one, we clearly laid out the zealous commitment to the mediatory obedience of God's word. Thank you, Lord, for that. We saw that with Israel all the way through. God sent them prophets. And the priest's lips should always keep knowledge and the people should seek the law at their mouth. They always had a way to go back and have Torah explained. That's Leviticus and that's Deuteronomy. You know that, just like it should be in the church as well. Point number two, the divine call to worship. This is absolutely amazing. Look at Exodus 24, verse 8. Look at verse 8 in our text. Are we there? Now, I want to actually start at verse uh, 6 and go through verse 8. And Moses took half of the blood, put it in a basin, half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and he took the book of the covenant. That would correspond to this book. Y'all got that? He took the book of the covenant, and notice what the text says. And he sprinkled blood on it. He took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, And they said, all the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. It doesn't make any sense to you because the blood is not a precious doctrine for us. But the blood was a mechanism that actually brought efficacy to the covenant. Whenever men made baris in the Old Testament, there was a cutting of their wrists or their hands or something of their body parts so that they could mingle blood together. Or it was taking an innocent lamb, slitting its throat, and the blood would be taken and put between those two parties. It was a blood oath. The blood here that Moses provided for the children of Israel pointed to the blood of God's son that he used to strike a covenant with Israel. They saw God saying, I'm willing to offer my son to bring you into an everlasting union with me. And he symbolically by the lamb sprinkled blood on the altar, on the book, on the people to say it is by the blood of the lamb of God that we are brought into covenant with him. And we are thus made his people by the death, burial and resurrection of the son of the living God. Did that make some sense? This is an awesome day. This is not a play day. This is an awesome day. God is saying, I swear to you. I swear to you. He could swear by no greater oath. I swear to you. And the son confirmed that swearing, did he not? This is the awesome grounds upon which you and I are looking at point number two, the divine call to worship in God's presence. Sub uh, sub points A and B fall out this way. First, they were consecrated by blood. We see that here, right? Consecrated by blood. Listen to the Hebrew writer, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18 through 20, because the Hebrew writer is writing about how the Hebrews went through this and how it's ultimately fulfilled where? In Jesus. So the Hebrew writer is speaking to this same group of people, except in the New Testament, right? Here it is. Listen, whereupon neither the First Testament, that's what we're dealing with in our text, right? Was dedicated without blood, verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all of the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, meaning he diluted the blood 
and used the scarlet as a sponge to sprinkle. Notice what it says. Uh, with water and scarlet and hyssop and sprinkle both the what? Both the what? That this book is a blood sprinkled book. And when it's not preached from that standpoint, you can't get the blessing out of it. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no pouring out of the Holy Ghost. Without the pouring out of the Holy Ghost, there's no vision of God. You cannot see God apart from Christ. It won't happen until his blood is shed for you in the sprinkling upon your heart. This is why we pray all the time, Lord, wash us. Sprinkle us clean. Purge us with the hyssop of your word because I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to see you. Am I making some sense? And the reason why a lot of Christians can't see God is because they don't understand the preciousness of the blood. Listen to it very carefully. Watch what he says in verse 20, Hebrews 9, 20, saying this is the blood of the what? Testament, which God has enjoined unto you. The Hebrew writer is laying out an argument to the Hebrew people about what happened in the old covenant. Look at now 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. This is how Peter puts it. He says, we who are true believers are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Do you believe that? Right. I don't want to get into that into any real detail. There's no way you can be saved if God didn't choose you first in Christ before the foundation of the world. There's no way you could be saved. Just like Israel would have never been brought out of Egypt if God didn't choose them in Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God did not arbitrarily pull those Hebrew people out of Egypt. He pulled them out on the grounds of a promise he made to somebody else. They are objects of grace, just like you and I are objects of grace. I'm not saved because of who I am. I'm only saved because of who Jesus is and who I am in Jesus. And who I am in Jesus. The Father and the Son made a covenant in time memorial before the world began, and I was in it. And the son made sure God would hunt me down in this neighborhood I lived in some 44 years ago and call me by word and power to the blood of the precious lamb of the living God. And he changed my life forever. See, every believer has to be able to say that. Every believer has to be able to say that. Listen to how Peter puts it. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. We dealt with that in 2 Thessalonians. The Holy Ghost has to hunt you down and set you aside. He has to break you down and show you his glory and show you your sin. The Holy Ghost has to come get you because you're running. You're a fugitive. You're constantly running from God. You're constantly running from God. But you can't hide from a God who has chosen to come get your raggedy tail and bring you into his everlasting glory. Hunt them down, oh God. Hunt them down. Hunt them down. Right. See, the globe is only so big. It's only so deep. And gravity is going to keep you from going to other planets right now. And he's doing that because he wants to save some of us. Even if you could get to other planets, which I'll be talking about in the near future, and you will. Ain't no place in this universe you can hide from God. 
talking about wanting to get away from this planet and start, start communions on other planets, you better hope the gospel goes with you. Because you only, you getting ready to start a whole new community of sinners up there. I don't care what y'all doing, and you still going to need to be saved. Somebody still going to have to preach the everlasting gospel to you on Uranus and on Mars and on Pluto and on Saturn. Where are you going to go? Sub point B. Secondly, they were called representatively, and this is what I want us to get into now. They were called representatively, and this is where when you're doing theology properly, the Spirit of God is going to help you understand the parallels between the old and new. What you're about to see is how God utterly rejects the notion of this indiscriminate democratic process of establishing your own identity. This notion of just, because see, democracy is part of the lie that the Marxist system is using to assert that you and I have autonomy from God. Right. A democratic process denies hierarchy. It denies structure. It denies a, a, a central organizing principle. Democratic process simply says every man is his own boss. If that's not Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, I don't know what is. Am I making some sense? That's why I'm not a Democrat. Because I'm not one who can say I can do whatever I want to, whenever I want to, wherever I want to. God has persuaded me that my, my words mean nothing. My counsel and my advice mean nothing. I am not saved to do whatever I want to do. And if I run across a mob of Democrats, you know what I know what they are? They're nothing but rebels against God. Please understand that. This is why they're tearing up your cities everywhere you go. They're Democrats. I know some people are mad, but that's okay. You need to be saved. And you Republicans are worse. Because you, 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 you pretend to love God, but you're simply actually doing the same thing in reverse. You're the slow train to hell, the Democrats the fast train to hell. You notice they're opening the door to all of the same foolishness we've been fighting against for decades. This is what we told you. This is a dialectical process. One pump cart pumping in two different directions, going in one way. It's a delusion. You don't see that going on here. What you see going on in our text is God calling them according to a hierarchy of structure and privilege. Look at it. This is the way the text lays it out under point number two. As we're dealing with our text, notice what it says, verse, uh, verse number 9, 24, 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. You guys see that? They went up to God because God called them up. After that, the blood was shed and after the covenant was ratified because this is the leadership in Israel. I want you to get the hierarchy. Moses first. He has a co-minister who is subordinate to him in Joshua. God's preparing Joshua. I told you that back at the war with Amalek. He's preparing Joshua to take the people in because Moses does not get to take them in. Moses is a picture of the law. Joshua, whose name means Jehovah saves, is a picture of Christ taking them in to the promised land. So Joshua is going to be in cahoots with Moses for this next 40 years. Under Joshua and Moses is the priestly administration of the law under Aaron and his sons. Did y'all get that? 
That's a second tier down. And under them are the 70 elders. This is your Sanhedrin of the New Testament. Did y'all get that? This is your hierarchy. The Sanhedrin are the judges who deal at the local level with the tens and the hundreds and the thousands. They have all been called into a one-week holy convocation with God. This lasted seven days. Did y'all read your Bible? This is a seven-day journey. Seven-day journey. What are they doing? They're going up the mountain to sit and be with God. Who is that pastor? The leadership. The whole leadership of Israel is being called near to God. And the reason why is God wants to show us something about the hierarchy of government, its privileges and its responsibilities. And you and I want to actually now engage that so we can understand the gospel because this parallels to the New Testament. It's very easy for us to see it shortly. So under point number two, sub point B, secondly, they were called representatively, they were called, as I said, not as an indistinguishable democratic mob running up on God like they tried to do at the Ten Commandments at the Mount Sinai. Remember that? They wanted to run up on God. God said, no, Moses, you better tell these fools I'll kill them right away. Isn't that what he said? I've already showed you the love of God is conditional. We'll see that when I come back in Exodus chapter 33, because God plainly told Moses, I'll wipe them out and I'll start all over again with you. That's because they're going to do the very thing that God told them not to do, make a golden calf. We're not there yet. Here where we are now is actually understanding how God demands that we understand hierarchical authority. Hierarchical authority which this Marxist, socialist, neo-socialist system is seeking to destroy. And starting in the home. So notice what the text says here over in verse 10. And they saw the God of what? And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in its clearness. And upon the nobles... Uh, noble children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. I'm going to unpack that in our third point. The Lord said unto Moses, come up to me into the mount and be there. This is the time where Moses is going to hang out for 40 days. Come thou up into the mount and be there. Now notice he didn't call Joshua. Because Joshua is going to stay down at the lower edges of the height of the mount, waiting on Moses. Moses is a picture of Jesus. Jesus ascends to the throne of God after the work of redemption is done. That's why the blood has already been shed. Y'all got that? Joshua sits underneath Jesus, underneath Moses, to minister to Moses when Moses comes down. Notice what the text goes on to say in verse Uh, 13, and Moses rose up and his minister Joshua went up to the mount and he said unto the elders, this is what Moses said, you guys stay here. See it? You guys tarry here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Ur are with you. If any man have any matter to do, let him come to them. So notice that the whole Sanhedrin along with the priesthood is down at the lower level. The second tier up is Moses and Joshua. Moses will separate from Joshua and go all the way up into the presence of God. Y'all got that? That's called a hierarchy. 
inherent in Joshua already is an elevated status, is it not? This is the man that all through the wilderness is going to be impeccably obedient to God. This is the man that knows what it means to be second in command. This is what Jesus was in his whole ministry, was he not? I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me and to do his work. I didn't come to speak my own words. I didn't come to act my own way. I came to represent my father. That is a father-son paradigm. The son is never the father or else the father is never the father. And the son is never the son. We never violate or confound those categories, do we? The father is always cardinal one. The son is cardinal two. They are equal in nature, subordinate in relationship, necessarily so. So it is why we are arguing. Don't let this hell-bound generation destroy what we call the organic structure of the Imago day. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen because if they will, if they can, they will, and you'll lose a true understanding of who God is. See what I'm getting at? Right, no, yes, it's clear. There's a hierarchy to the structure. There's a hierarchy. And so you guys are are dealing with the ubiquitous argument against patriarchy everywhere on the planet. Every time you turn around, the godless patriarchy, the patriarchy, the toxic patriarchy. And that's an attempt on the part of the Marxists to use a pejorative to blind you to the hierarchy of God. Did I make some sense? And and tolerate your loved ones who fall prey to the delusion because they just don't know no better. See, when Jesus hung on the cross and they killed Jesus, they were really trying to kill the father. We know this. Because the Israelites had already apostatized and said, we have no king but Caesar, which means they were already worshiping pagan gods. They were doing the same thing to Jesus that they wanted to do to Moses. Kill him too. Because our hearts are always trying to go back to Egypt. Egypt is very alluring. Okay? And it has a pseudo framework of a false gospel paradigm in it as well with Isis and Horus and Osiris. Do you hear me? And seven other false gods that are part of the family of the Sun God, the sun God. It's important for you to know that we are dealing with a spiritual battle and many of our Westerners are returning back to Egyptology as I speak, especially black folk. As I speak, and if you can actually trace out their language and trace out their doctrine, you can see that they are inflating and exalting our women to actually be gods. Am I making some sense? Now, the moment you buy it, you might as well take the book of the covenant and throw it away. Because you can't hold this book and that doctrine too. Because the Bible's clear that God made man first, then the woman. And he brought her out of the man so that they are equal in nature, distinct in person, subordinate in roles. Right now, if you abandon that hierarchy with the man and the woman, you are going to lose the gospel. 
You are going to lose the gospel. And I see lots of people losing the gospel right before my eyes, trying to conflate paganism with the Bible. Even at the scientific level, they are asserting that the woman is the one alone who can give life even without a man. This is where my young people who are in the medical industry need to understand. They have been also corrupted by these false doctrines at the scientific and the biological level. So some of you guys that are creeping down those labyrinths, you need to be discerning about some of that stuff that's appealing to you about female deity, matriarchal deity, because they're lying. But you got to know the lie. You can't just say, I believe it's a lie. You got to know why they are lying. Because many of them are PhDs and doctors and scientists as well. Are you hearing me? And they will come at you with data and information and overwhelm you if you don't know how to deconstruct false papers. If you don't know how to deal with all of these articles and these, this, this literature coming out of these different groups and demonstrate the fallacy of it, you will buy it as a wholesale truth and it will be nothing but a lie. Right, it's extremely important. See, so what you don't know is happening in our culture is for many, many decades now, they have been swapping the truth out for a lie at the historical, at the biological, at the sociological level, at the economic level, across the whole systems. There are tons of lies that have been already embedded into our educational system. Right. Through your precepts, do I get understanding? Therefore, I hate every false way. Right, it's so very important for you to see that this is why the church is completely riddled through with paralysis because it has failed to pick up on these ancient heresies that have taken on new external forms. These are old heresies, fundamentally Gnosticism. Okay? Old heresies, the church used to battle in the third and fourth and fifth century and overcame them, and now they have emerged again and have dominated our society. This is why... Western Christianity and Western culture is on its way to hell right now. The nations that forget God will be turned into hell. And that's what we're experiencing. And what God is doing with Israel is bearing record to who he really is by calling them near. Did y'all get that? Bearing record to who he is and bearing record to who he is by calling them near. Um, I bring it up just a tad um, on the heat side. Notice what it says here. Uh, in our text, he says over in, um, I'm, I'm moving a bit, I need to get back to our text. Here now, the children of Israel themselves are watching something that is worth our uh, observation in terms of what just happened with the leadership being led all the way up to the mount to hang out with God because the rest of the millions of the people did not go. They had to hang out and, and just hear from the elders. Notice what it says. And so we read over in verse in verse 15, and Moses went up into the mount and a cloud covered the mount and the glory of the Lord abode upon the Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it. How many days? And the seventh day he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So for seven days, the whole mountain is shrouded in the presence of the Lord. Moses is up there. Joshua's up there. Aaron is up there. The 70 elders are in the what? Cloud. Y'all got that? They're in the cloud kind of enjoying fellowship with God for six days. And on the seventh day, God says, all right, fellas, 
I just want to spend some time with Moses. I want you to see this next verse before I unpack point number three, because point number three is what I want to deal with with you. Notice what it says over in verse uh, 17. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the what? So the children of Israel down at the bottom were watching the ascent of the elders, were they not? They were down at the, the children of Israel didn't get to get called up, did they? No. So they're watching from a distance, aren't they? They're watching from a distance the ascent of the elders. They don't know because the elders in the cloud that there was a separation between the 70, a separation between the priesthood, a separation between Joshua and Moses. All they know is they see the fire on the top of the mountain and they know this was the God that spoke with us a few weeks ago when he gave us the 10 words. They know God is present, don't they? They know God is present. What is the lesson here that God is teaching us? He's teaching us that leadership is called into a deeper, more profound, much more tangible, concrete experience of God's grace so that they can pass it down to the common people because the people asked for mediation. Am I making sense? The people ask for mediation. Moses, don't let God talk to us. You tell us. So now what God is doing is drawing the whole leadership near to God, but everybody can't reach the heights that Moses does. Okay, and so this is New Testament language too in order for us to overcome, again, the false notion that we, the church is called to a kind of democratic process, which would mean that, you know, every one of us can prophesy. Every one of us can have visions and dreams, dreams. Our women can be preachers too. They can be pastors and elders and deacons. This is amazing. So you've heard those arguments for decades. Haven't I taught you? Now notice how our culture is completely uh, blurring the lines of distinction between men and women to accommodate that kind of democratic, indiscriminate process of relationship. Are y'all keeping up with me? So we've been fighting this battle for decades. And men who capitulate to women taking that that hierarchical role have submitted to the devil. And families that have done the same thing have submitted to the devil. And you would hear from them many years ago, we're not trying to take y'all place. We're not trying to take y'all place. Yes, you are. You're a lie from hell. You're trying to take God's place. See, because the Marxist system uses lies. It always lies. I remember debating. You guys know my dear friend Brandon, the homosexual. I would debate him for years and share with him the fallacy of his assumption that it's all right to to practice homosexuality. And I told him that same-sex marriage is just one step in a rung of advancements that would ultimately occur. So today we're going after the kids because our, our judicial system wants to lower the age of sexual consent to 11 years old. Uh, you guys are going, oh, you should have been doing that 15 years ago. You go, oh, you should have been doing that 15 years ago when I warned us. Am I making some sense? Now it's all on top of us. I am so afraid, and I'm using that word uh, advisedly because I'm not trembling. I am just super concerned in a minute you won't be able to do anything about it. Right? There's a point at which God gave Israel up. He gave them up. 
Do y'all understand that? He gave them up to all of the perversions that they allowed to occur in the land of Canaan that God says, I sent you in there to extirpate all of those bad practices. He gave them up to them. Next thing you know, the homosexuals was in the church. They were called sodomite houses. I taught you that. They, they, they established sodomite houses in the, in the temple. This is your neo-Catholic Old Testament foreshadow of where we are today. Not just the Catholics, it's going on in the, in the Protestant churches too. And it's certainly going on in your secular church called the school system. It's nothing but a religion now. All the kids in your public schools are being catechized. All the kids in your public schools are being catechized. There's nothing about their education that is not being shrouded by a dogmatic system of ideology. Did you hear what I just stated? All your children are being catechized by this secular system. Not some, all of them. Every one of your children is being taught to buy the lie. And there's no way that you are going to successfully overcome that in their heart by you talking to them a few minutes a week when they get those diabolical teachers for 40, 50 hours a week. It will not happen. You will lose your children, ladies and gentlemen, to hell. You're going to lose them. I know it hurts, it's the truth. Now, the reason why you and I are looking at this experience of God drawing the Israelite the leaders closer to God is because if leadership could ever understand the privilege of being close to God, they'd be willing to die for God, for the people. If leadership knows what it means to know the true and the living God, in the reality of the fullness of fellowship with God, then they would never sell the people out to a false God. If husbands knew God, as they ought to know God, they would never sell the children out to a false God. They'd rather lay down their life than to cause their children to lose their true identity. You hearing me? This text is clear to me. It's absolutely abundantly clear. All the people are way back there. They see God way up there. And here, 70 plus the priesthood plus Moses and Joshua are drawing near to God. And let's now look at what they see. Look at what they see. This is point number three, a transcendent view of the king of glory. That third point was by design. A transcendent view of the king of glory. It's by design. I didn't say a transcendent view of God, though he is. I said a transcendent view of the king. Of the king of glory. And we've asserted it forever. If you ever have a proper view of God. He's not some old man sitting up there in a rocking chair. No time in the Bible has the heavens been opened. And the true and the living God has been revealed. And he has not been revealed as a sovereign monarch which means he is a king. 
And if nobody knows God as king, his children should. If nobody knows him as monarch, as ruler, as sovereign, as king, his children should. Now watch this. If God is king, if he is the king of glory, if he is the Lord of lords, if he is the master of the universe, if he's sovereign God almighty, then there is no other authority that we submit to but the authority of our king and our master. So when you act like God is nothing but another politician for whom you are simply asking for things to give you because this pseudo system of socialism is always promising to give you things. If you would know, you got to be their slave. You got to be their slave. This is why Americans are slaves. This is why on the dollar in God we trust was one of the biggest lies we could ever have perpetrated by an icon. It's in the dollar we trust. And now that that God, like Dagon, is about to fall, you're getting ready to see all kind of people have fits. Because our comfort has been in the almighty dollar. Rather than the true and the living God. Y'all keeping up with me? Let me continue because I want you to see it. It's so important. The optic here is anthropomorphical. I've taught you that before. God is constantly showing us himself through us because that's the only way we can comprehend the invisible, impenetrable, unapproachable, incomprehensible God. He's not comprehensible. He's not penetrable. He's infinite. He's invisible. If he doesn't accommodate us in a manifestation of himself that corresponds with who we are, we have no grounds of being able to relate to him. Did that make some sense? And so once again, What the elders and what Moses and what Joshua saw was a glorious God sitting on his throne. Y'all got that? Time to teach you a few things. I know my time has been up. Sub point A, a visual of God's translucence. A visual of God's translucence. Listen to what the text says. The text tells us over in verse number 10, and they saw the God of Israel. You see that? And there was under his feet. Now, do you understand what we're getting ready to do? We're getting ready to understand the position of God over his people so that the only thing they see are his feet. That means even Moses and Joshua do not have an equal sitting with God in that fellowship. They are subordinate to God. Did that come home? Under his feet. You got time? Because this vision is important for you to hear. What God is saying to the men that are privileged to come into his presence, don't you ever go down that hill and tell anybody that you're equal to God. The beauty 
of sitting at the feet means that we are submissive. It really means we are slaves. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And God has promised to subdue everything under the feet of Jesus. This is a clear prophetic insight, is it not? Everything will be put under his feet. To be put under the foot means to be subjugated. It means to be controlled. It means to be subordinated to. This is the way James put it in James chapter 2, verse 3. Listen to it. James said, rich folk come into church and they get to buy their pews. But poor people have to come sit under the feet of the wealthy. Well, all of us are poor when it comes to God. We can't pay to have fellowship with God on an equal level. Does that make some sense? All of us are coming to God and sitting at his feet. The only thing that we can see is the bottom of his glorious feet. That's what the text is teaching us. Go back to our text. I want you to see it. And notice what Moses says. Moses says in this text, and and his feet were, as it were, paved work of sapphire stone. Do you see it? Paved work of sapphire stone. Now, what is Moses asserting? He's asserting that we're paying attention to this event. That's one thing. We've been brought near to pay attention to him. Now, what we're looking at is a beautiful description of the purity of God in that which is described by the sapphire stone in terms of its translucence. It looks like you're piercing through his feet into heaven. Did y'all get that? It looks like you're piercing through his feet into heaven. This is why you got to study a little bit of chemistry and, and, and know something about uh, gems and stones because that's what this is. Notice it says the sapphire stone. You guys see that? Like the sapphire stone in its beauty and splendor. And, and, and I, I shouldn't even go here for time's sake, but be careful. Sapphire stones are, are made of all kinds of different colors. All right. This one here is indicating that it has a bluish greenish tint that we are looking up into the heavens. We're looking up into the heavens because heaven is his throne. Heaven is his throne. That's what my master said. Do you believe that? So they're looking up and they're seeing the feet of God and it's translucent. That's Revelation chapter four, verse three. Look at it. Revelation four. Three, we've been here before. This is why I love the apocalypse, because the language of the apocalypse is precisely and exactly like the language of the Old Testament to let us know that what God has purposed from the beginning shall be exactly the same way in the end. We call him the alpha and the, we call him the first and the, we call him the beginning and the. And so protology leads to eschatology because the one who created all things, he creates the end from the beginning. God knows where he's going. Notice what it says. And, he's, and the one that sat, look at verse 2 because you need to know it's a throne there. And immediately I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne set in heaven. We're not surprised at that, are we? Because our God is a sovereign monarch. It's set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Look at verse 3. And he that sat upon the throne was to look upon. What's to look upon? Is what Israel doing in Exodus 25, 24, looking upon him? And they saw God. He was to look upon like Jasper and as a what? Sardis stone. Do you see it? 
And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. This is all describing the splendor and glory and beauty of the gem analogy of the presence of God. Does that make some sense? And take your rainbow back. Because the diabolical enemy has gone up metaphorically to heaven and brought that rainbow down to the earth and has inverted the reality and has turned it into something perverse. Did you hear me? Only two times in the book of Revelation is the rainbow there at the throne of God, which means he's sovereign over that covenant. He told us he wouldn't destroy the earth until he's brought all of his people into his kingdom. And now the enemy thinks he can go to heaven and snatch it down and turn it into an emblem of absolute perversion and rebellion and anarchy against God. You see it, don't you? Now, I know this makes some of you uncomfortable because you're too much of a consumer yourself. But see, this is the reality. And, and you know, don't look at anybody else. That's, that's way, every time you do that, you're wrong. It's you. It's me. Stop. You're playing church. It's you. I guarantee you, if you examine your life, you are embracing the rainbow way more than you should. Guarantee you that. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. Y'all got time for me? Look at verse 6. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, uh, four beasts full of eyes before and behind. There it is, the sea like unto what? Crystal. That's the whole idea of a heavenward, heavenward view being brilliant and, and, and translucent and also utterly peaceful. A sea of glass. That means it's a dominion of unmolested peace and tranquility. Go back to our text. Got a few more things to show you. I have to stop. These are what the elders are observing. They are observing a God of translucence, of absolute brilliance, of effulgence, represented by the symbol of heaven. This is why when I ha- we have a clear sky, isn't it a beautiful thing to see? Some days we are not just so assaulted by the poisons that's running through our atmosphere. We get to see a beautiful sky, don't we? Yeah, listen, Subpoint B, a view from a footstool position. Do you see it? That's a view from a footstool position. This is what he said in Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit thou here until I make your enemies your what? Your footstool. So who's sitting on the throne? The Father. Who's sitting with him? Jesus. And everything else is under his feet, including you and me. The problem is there's a whole bunch of us on this planet who are rebels under his feet, and some of us love to be under his feet. I love being under the feet of Jesus. I do not mind being a poor servant under the feet of a glorious master. How about you? Right, because I'm not God. I'm not king. He's king of glory. It's a beautiful thing. I'm glad he bought me. I'm glad I'm his slave. I'm glad I'm his doulos. I'm his servant. Because Jesus was that for me. Jesus was that for me. This is what the psalmist is teaching. And this is so glorious. Let me go on. So glorious. There is another sub point I want you to capture. So 
I am helping you comprehend that their position is one of humility. Their position is one of privilege, but it's certainly making sure that they don't take a position of being able to assert to anyone that they possess deity or equality with God. They don't. They're servants. Y'all got that? We're servants of God. We're servants of God. And the text will go on to teach us a few more things here that I think are worthy for us to to regard. And that's this. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his what? Children of God. Listen to what he just stated. He stated that they had an opportunity to see God. And they did. And he didn't kill them. No man can look upon God and live. He laid not his hand. He allowed them to see that particular aspect of his sovereign monarchial, if if you will, uh, anthropomorphic rule. This is a man vision. But all they're seeing is his what? His feet. We're not at Exodus 33 yet. Remember what he told Moses? No man can see my face and live. And even you, Moses, you won't see my face. All you're going to see is my what? Backside. But I don't care if all I ever saw was his baby toe. I just want to see something of the glory, of the fullness, of the God who is able to save me by his grace. What I am clearly aware of as I as I wind my time down is that these men will go down that hill more accountable than they ever have been coming into contact with the true and the living God. Did that make some sense? Let me show you one more thing. They're in the presence of God who is mediating his glory through an image of symbolic monarchial reign. And God's allowing them to be there for six days. And guess what they are doing? Eating and drinking and fellowshipping in the presence of God. Do you see it? Do you see it? And upon the nobles, the children of Israel, he did not lay his hands. Also, they saw God and they did what? Eat and drink. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the metaphor of a table of fellowship. This is a table of fellowship. This is a table of fellowship with God. Leadership should know God. This is an allusion to Jesus and the disciples. It's an allusion to Christ with the 11 right before he was betrayed. He ate and drank and broke bread with his disciples. And truly our fellowship is with the father and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We touched him. We handled him. We saw him. The word of life was manifested. That's how John puts it in 1 John chapter 1. See, this is why we understand hierarchy. Because Paul tells us both in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 2.20, pull up Ephesians 2.20, there's a hierarchy. It's called God, the Father, Christ, the Son, and then his holy apostles and then his holy prophets, and then his holy pastors and teachers. Did y'all get that? Did y'all get that? That's Ephesians 4 verse 11 as well. Please hear me. God the Father, God the Son, 
the apostles who brought us the legislation. This book comes from the apostles. The Old Testament by the prophets, the New Testament by the apostles. This is our authority. This is our coded constitutional mediation, is it not? They wrote it down, did they not? We have it now. This is the only way we can walk with God, through this authority. If you call yourself a Christian, apart from this book, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. You are a rebel. You are a rebel against the glory of God. Apostolic doctrine has been clearly laid down as to be the foundation upon which we worship Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if they receive you, talking to the apostles, then they receive me. And if they receive me, they receive him that sent me. That's hierarchical. This is why I say when you listen to these crazy people talking about knowing God but not knowing Jesus, it cannot possibly be true. You cannot know the Father without the Son. You're playing pagan religion again. And he that does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. The Father gave his only begotten Son, raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand, highly exalting him, giving him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Almighty. This is the doctrine that will smoke out every false prophet, every false teacher, every con. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You deny Jesus, it tells us you don't have the third person. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings us into an absolute certain knowledge of the death, burial, and resurrection of God's darling son. The blood of Jesus Christ is the grounds of our acceptance before God. Listen to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Now unto him that loved us and washed us in his own blood. John to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor and the first begotten of faithful witness and first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Here it is, unto him that what? Who loved us? Christ. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. Is that love or what? I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Is that love or what? Is that love or what? Washed us in his own blood. See, this is the Father's love to us in the person of the Son. The way we know the Father is by the death of the Son. His blood becomes our right as sons and daughters of God. His DNA is our DNA by the implantation of the Holy Ghost, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. I am just as much a son of the living God as Jesus is since he took on my nature, being God, and died in my place to bridge a gap between me and God. He is the latter upon which we ascend and descend to let men and women know he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by him. He is the revelation of the invisible God, and God promises to subdue all things under, everything is going to be subdued under Jesus. Did y'all hear what I just stated? And when, and when, and when leadership, 
is allowed to be drawn that close to God, it's in order for them to to not do the foolish thing that we're going to see just in a couple weeks they're going to do. This is a six-day convocation between the rulers and God. A six-day convocation. Isn't that a remarkable event? This is a six-day convocation. These men getting ready to go down the hill and have to administrate Torah, the Pentateuch, to the people. Is that true? Now Moses is going to stay up. Is he going to stay up? And Joshua's going to stay up too. Is he going to stay up? Now they're getting ready to go down the hill and go back to work. For about 33 days. And then some fool going to say, we don't even know where Moses is. What a lie. You do know where Moses is. We watched him ascend. Just like we know where Jesus is. Because the apostles said, we saw him. We saw him. We saw a cloud receive him out of our sight. And the angel said, this same Jesus you have seen go into glory shall come in like manner as he first left. See, this is the testimony of the apostles, the testimony of the elders. And what's remarkable to me is how just 37 days later, they could turn and commit the basest idolatry they ever had ever committed. Don't tell me that we're not depraved. You are rotten to the core apart from the grace of God. There's not an ounce of goodness in you and me if God doesn't save us and change our nature. All have sinned, and there's none good, no, not one. Every one of us are rotten to the core, and we would turn into devils just like Judas Iscariot, who sat at the table too, and turn and betray our master if it wasn't for grace. Oh, the grace that sought me. Oh, the grace that brought me. Oh, that grace that raised me from the dead. Marvelous grace. Wonderful grace. Grace that is able to save. Please understand you're an object of grace and nothing but an object of grace. There is no boasting for us to do except in Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Amen.